Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Uh, this was supposed to be Faith in Action Sunday. Like, we're not supposed to be here right now. Our plan was to shut the service down, to go out and serve the schools, but God had a different plan in mind, right? Uh, John, I think, put it so well the, a couple weeks back that, that COVID didn't surprise him. He, he's had something that he's going to do in it. He's going to redeem it somehow. He's going to make use of the time somehow. And so we'll see how that plays out this week. And actually, uh, I'm going to take the message today. We're going to look at Ephesians and we're going to kind of move it all towards that. So before I jump into the message, uh, just want to lay something before you that, uh, yeah, we had the acoustic set up here this week and that was great. Amen. They did an awesome job. Sounded wonderful. I'm not just saying that because my wife was up here. I genuinely thought it went wonderfully. Part of the acoustic set though is, uh, again, we were supposed to not have church this morning and we were not supposed to schedule a band and schedule everyone this morning. And so rather than kind of at the last minute work in a band, we decided to give some of the band people those Sunday off. And so I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we've seen a lot of like Wendy Nurton on the keys, Marvin playing the bass, Scott Porter playing the bass. Chris has been up here like every single week playing acoustic guitar, electric guitar. He's learning electric guitar because we need some musicians. And so this is my just like laying it before you all that we, if you are musically inclined or if you maybe were one day and you just really want to learn again, you really want to get involved. I think uh, now would be as, the, as I look at it, as Caden gets in here and he's building this worship culture, he's not just building a program, but he's, he's really kind of infusing a, infusing a culture of worship into this house. And I couldn't be more pleased with where that's going. And I think now's the time, if you want to jump on in that, now would be the time to get involved. And so if you are, if you're a vocalist, if you're a drummer, like all of those are important, uh, especially if you play the keyboard, if you play the guitar in any form, capacity, we'd love to have you up on the stage playing with us. So worship at gschurch.tv is where you can drop an email. You can just go talk to him. He's sitting right over there after service. Grab coffee with him, hear a little bit about his heart. Uh, I promise if you sit down with him, if you were at all interested before, you will be very much so interested after that time with him. Okay? So, if you're good, go talk to him. If, uh, you know, you're one of those people on American Idol that you really don't, you're like, how did they get here? You know, let's get some just like good, healthy feedback before we get to that point where it's like, oh, no, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm being silly. Jump on in if you want to jump in. Um, I want to open today with a quote. Um, I heard this quote forever ago, and uh, I didn't know who it was from, so I was researching who, like, who said it. Uh, Karl Barth is the one who gets credit for saying it, and he is a uh, famous Swiss theologian, uh, and he's probably most known for his work, his commentary that he wrote on the book of Romans, one of the most well-known commentaries on the book of Romans. And what Karl Barth said, I can't find where he was specifically cited for this quote, but as the story kind of goes, he's talking to a young group of pastors, a young group of theologians, and he's encouraging them, he's teaching them, and he says, use the Bible in one hand, but have your newspaper in the other. And always use the Bible to interpret what's happening in your newspaper. And I just think that's a wonderful call, a wonderful challenge, I guess, for the preacher, for me, because like I'm, I'm immersed in the same 2020 that you all are in right now. 
Right, we have just all this crazy stuff going on. And there's, there's the global pandemic. There's all these racial tensions. There's economic uncertainty. There's an election coming up. It, maybe that is not a coincidence at all, okay? I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. But here we are all experiencing this 2020. And I think the pull in my heart is to, uh, you know, sometimes I'm just like, man, we just got to preach the gospel. Like we just got to keep reinforcing, got to just keep giving people the gospel. We can't get so lost in all these different topics. We got to just keep reminding people of who Jesus is, what he's done for them and how they now stand with him. And, and, and that's true and it's good. But if, but if we only preach the gospel, then we're going to miss the fact that topically we're all sitting in a 2020 where the world's on fire. And we're just, are we just going to ignore that while, while everything seems to be burning to the ground? We're just going to preach the gospel. It's like, okay, yes, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm saved by grace. Thank you. But how do I deal with my marriage? How do I deal with this economic uncertainty that's going on? How do I deal with this virus? How do I deal with my crazy friends on social media? And we have all these different things that are going on, right? The other poll then is for me to go, okay, let's just be hyper-relevant, and let's only speak on topics. And let's just go through and topic by topic and piece by piece, just look at what's going on in culture around us. And let's just address that. And it'll be super relevant. It'll be super helpful and practical. But if it's divorced from the gospel, if we miss the gospel, then we rob ourselves of all the power to actually go out and make a difference in the world. And, and so the, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and the reason I bring that up today is because the Lord, as he would have it, has us walking through the book of Ephesians, and he has us now in a section of scripture in chapter six that is sub, like it's got the subheading of bond servants and masters. In other translations, which are maybe more accurate translations, it's slaves and masters. And so here we go, getting to talk about just getting to go all in on an uncomfortable topic once again. In the midst of all this racial tension that's going on, in the midst of all these different phrases and slogans, like you've heard them, you know them, and we get to go, okay, and now here is this piece of the letter that's included by Paul where he's writing to slaves and masters. And if we can be honest, like I think for a long time, that was a tense thing for me. Like how, how, what's the Bible really saying here? Could it possibly be meaning the same thing of what I think of when I think of the word slavery? And so I want to unpack that today, but ultimately what I want to steer us towards is, again, how are we putting our faith in action this week rather than on this day? Okay, so let's read the text, and we're going to jump right into it. We're in Ephesians 6, uh, starting in verse 5, and you can read it in your own Bible. I always think that's a wonderful way to do it, but if you don't have your Bible with you, then it's going to be on the screen as well. Paul writes, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ." Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and, know, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, Jesus, we just invite you into this text today. God, give me the words uh, to unpack what you really intend here. Uh, give us the capacity to hear beyond maybe just one sentence, Lord, but help us to hear the whole heart of what you're trying to communicate today, what you, I feel like you've put on my heart to share with us today. 
God, I just ask that uh, this service is given to you. It's given for your glory, for your fame, for your renown. And so if there's going to be anything that detracts from you, God, would you take it away at this moment? And would we just be able to focus our eyes on Christ alone as we just sang? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, the first thing that we're going to notice, obviously here, is that this passage, uh, Paul does not condemn slavery. Like, that's kind of the first tense point that we have to swallow. He's not saying that all the slaves should be set free. That's not what he says. It would be easier if he did. And so, but it's not what he says. It's not what he writes. And so we have to go, okay, wait, am I looking at this through the same lens that Paul is writing this? I think that's an important question anytime you come to the Bible. Culturally, am I sitting in a similar context to what Paul was sitting in? So when Paul uses this word slavery, he's writing from an Old Testament perspective. The Old Testament was written in what historians would call ancient Near East time period. So this time period, uh, thousands of years before Christ, that's where the Old Testament is, that's when the Old Testament is written, and where it's written is all in this area around where Israel sits, where Egypt sits, up by where Greece is. So this is the ancient Near East, Turkey, all these different areas over here. And so Paul is writing this thinking through the lens of ancient Near East customs and traditions. We hear the word slavery and we think of colonial slavery. We think of what happened in America. We think of the huge blemish on our record as a nation, as it were, where where we had the imprisonment, the capture and the involuntary, the involuntary bringing of Africans over here where we put like all of the industry on their back to be built and to be and to labor for us and to take care of things. And and they were mistreated and they were abused and they were possibly killed oftentimes. Right. Like we know this. And, and, And I also know hear this, that we're sitting in the middle of Loveland, Colorado. We're a pretty vanilla community here. But I know that, again, Bible in one hand, culture in the other, our news feed in the other, the news stations in the other hand, I'm looking at the world we're living in, and this is something that's being talked about. So the first thing that I think I have to do is some work to say, we're not looking at this the same way. When you hear the word slavery, you are not hearing it the same way that the readers of this letter would have heard it. Here's some of the main differences between ancient Near East slavery and what we think of when we think that word. First of all, uh, ancient Near East slavery was oftentimes entered into voluntarily. So it was a voluntary thing that you would give yourself. You would commit yourself to work for somebody. You'd commit yourself to work in somebody's household. That is not the same as colonial slavery. Colonial slavery had the capture against their will of African men, women, and children, and they were brought over here, not in like, I think we got to remember, it's not just like a 12-hour flight over from Africa over here. Like they were stuffed in the bottom of ships and many of them died on the way. Against their will. It was not the same. Ancient Near East slavery had people entering into it uh, because maybe they had a debt to repay to somebody. Maybe they had just made some bad decisions and this was an ulterior route out of the lifestyle they had chosen. Maybe they didn't make any bad decisions. They had no debt, but they saw a better opportunity going to work for that person to give themselves as a bondservant to this person. It created a new opportunity in their life that they wanted to pursue. It was voluntary. The next thing that we, I noticed about ancient Near East slavery versus colonial slavery is that ancient Near East slavery always retained the dignity of that individual as a person, as a person. 
colonial slavery reduced African people down to a commodity that was able to be used and traded and sold and killed if, if that was more convenient. They were just a commodity. But in ancient Near East slavery, that, that person always retained their dignity, their humanness was always kept with them, and they were able to gain social, political, and economic power in the world that they lived in still, even as a bondservant to somebody. I think of this mostly when I think of the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph did not enter into slavery voluntarily, but his brothers voluntarily sold him into slavery. Amen. They sold him into slavery, but what was he able to do? He was able to rise into second in command in Potiphar's house. He had economic, political, and social status that was to be gained as a person. They're so different. One always kept and recognized the value of the human. One degraded that person down to a commodity, no different than what we would have seen as as, uh, money or wood or any other resource. It was terrible. It was terrible. The third that I noticed is that uh, ancient Near East slavery was never considered solely on race. So anyone in that time period in the Old Testament, as, as authors from the New Testament are writing and writing in this framework that they're given, it was never based on just a race. It was just based on a race. And it wasn't just like America captured these African people. They were sent all over the world to be slaves. Europe had a gigantic problem with it too. And it was the capture of a people. Like they took a people group and they said, that people group is less than and that's why we can do this. It was never the case with ancient Near East slavery. It was never the case. It was was more of a uh, position on the socioeconomic scale than it was based on a race. And even as a position on the socioeconomic scale, it wasn't the bottom. The day laborer was actually still beneath and treated worse than the servant. Because the day laborer had no idea where his next job would come from. He had no stability in their life. The, 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 the slave, the, the bond servant in that time knew that how they were going to be treated. They knew their master. They belonged to them. They worked in their household. They, they knew they were cared for. And so it's different. The last one that I want to point out quickly is just that in ancient Near East tradition, uh, in biblical custom, in the year of Jubilees, so on the 50th year, after seven periods of seven years, all slaves were set free. So that was a defined amount of time that you could give yourself over to be a bondservant. It was not the case with colonial slavery. Generations and generations born into it, hundreds of years of people born into and staying in slavery as they were mistreated, as they were reduced out of their human value, as they were put there against their will. But, but biblically speaking, even the servants who, again, it's, already it's completely different, but in this year of Jubilee, uh, they're actually all set free and they're actually all resourced to go out and live their own individual life and be successful. And so um, the year of Jubilee, I love it because it marks their freedom, it marks the rest, and it, it all is a symbol that points us to Christ. That in Christ, even though we were slaves to sin, we are now free in Jesus. In Christ, even though uh, we, we, don't, we no longer have to toil for our salvation, but he's, we get to enter into his rest as we receive his grace. And so the year of Jubilee for slaves, it's this, it's this archetype for who Christ is going to show us who he actually is. So they're worlds apart. They're worlds apart. And even as I say the word slavery, we still look at it through the social and political and, and current climate that we're sitting in that was 
terrible, that was awful. And I think I get so detached from like racism because we're all taught it a certain way in our school systems. And I'm convinced that like, oh yeah, that ended in the 1800s sometime. And then, you know, the civil rights movement was in the 60s. And so now it's over. But it's not all the way over. It's not all the way over. I talked to black friends who had black parents who them, they themselves, they've experienced these terrible things. And so the, what I'm trying to say is, Colonial slavery, biblical slavery, not the same thing at all. They're not even in the same ballpark. And even still to this day, we are, we are sort of reaping what we had sown in colonial slavery in our country in some ways. And so let's move on because I think, honestly, I could, I, here's how this sermon could have gone. I could have presented that to you. I could have stopped right here and I said, so, okay, they're not the same. And what's here in Ephesians chapter six is really just distinguishing what employer and employee relations should look like. That's honestly closer to what we're talking about than what we think of when we think of the word slavery. What Paul is really getting at here is what employer and employee relations look at in the world that we live in today. So, so bosses, employers, you should treat your employees with dignity and respect, knowing that they are also co-heirs with Christ, even though you earn more than them, even though you tell them what to do, even though they will do whatever task you tell them to do because you are paying them certificates of appreciation in the form of dollars. And they'll do like, like we, I had, we had tasks here at the church during COVID that aren't normally on people's plate, but we always put duties as a sign in people's job descriptions. So vacuuming up all the Miller moths when we had like the Miller epidemic that was happening, everyone was sucking up those things. Didn't matter who you were, duties as assigned. But we treat everyone with dignity. We treat people with respect as employers. As employees, you got to keep in mind, even if you hate your boss, even if she is the worst person in the world, even if he is the most awesome boss in the world, you are rendering your service as to Christ, not for man. And so you are doing your work as if the Lord is right there. You're not doing it just for eye service. You're not doing it just for attention. You're not just doing it so you can people please. But you're working knowing that God has placed you where he wants you to be even if it's for a season, and you're doing your work ultimately to bring glory to Jesus. The master, the bondservant, the employer, and the employee all have the same purpose. Their purpose, no matter what lane you are given to run in, is to glorify Jesus and to make much of his name. And I could stop the message right there. Uh, I think that is the gist of what Paul is trying to communicate in this section that, he, that he's writing now to a group in, in Ephesus where it's estimated that 30% of the population at that time were bondservants in other people's households. And he writes this to both bondservants and masters, which gives me some blues clues to say that they're sitting right next to each other in the church service. But I want to have the conversation a little bit deeper today because, again, I have my Bible in one hand and I have the news in the other. I have my news feed in the other hand. And I know that there's a deeper conversation to be had today. And it's one that stems around this word privilege. Privilege. How many of you have heard that word recently, especially as it gets attached to another word? What is it? White. White privilege. And so I want to dissect this a little bit because I think that I want to look at where this idea maybe comes from biblically. And I want us to see how we can Take what's being said in culture. Take the language of the world that we're living in right now and we can say, but this is what my Bible says and this is my charge from God, not from man. Amen? So again, one of the first, I'm almost struck more by what Paul does not say in this letter than by what he does say. 
so, so he writes here, he writes in the letter to the Colossian church. Peter writes in his, in his letter, in his book. Uh, they all write in a way that would indicate not to eliminate and to abolish slavery. It's not what they say. And that's tense for us. Like, I'm almost struck by the fact that he doesn't say, okay, well, now that you masters have given yourself to the Lord, you, cannot, you can no longer have people working for you in this way. That's not what he says. That's not what the Bible ever paints a picture of, is that we need to not be doing this. The, the Bible, even though it's written to, and we have both the masters and the servants sitting next to each other in a church service, that doesn't create division in the church. But it also is not given the burden to the church to eliminate those divisions. The Bible does not erase social structures and economic classes. It doesn't. It doesn't say, masters, now that you have become a Christian, you need to give all your wealth, wealth to the younger, to the, or to the younger, to the, well, oftentimes it's, it's the younger people who are, have a little less money. But it's, it's not saying that we need to have this great wealth redistribution. We need to give things away. It's not saying that you who are in lesser privilege need to wait until the privilege of other people is given to you. It's not what it says. And so here's a lot of the conversation that I hear around this word privilege, okay? On, on the one hand of things, if I'm looking at my newsfeed, if I'm looking at the pressures of Instagram, I, I'm being told that I have white privilege and really that as, as a white, straight male who has two parents that both are still together, love each other and love me, that I have no platform to have this conversation today. That, that's what, like, I... Because it's just my bias. It's just my privilege. And I, I don't know what I don't know. And I can't know what I don't know because I'm white, because I'm straight, because I'm married, because I have two parents that love me. I don't have a leg in this conversation from culture's standpoint. But biblically, what I can say is that a lot of times what happens with privilege is it's providential. And this is something that I'm just, I'm missing to see in the conversation right now. We're like, I, I was born to be a six foot five lanky white dude. Like that's just how God knit me together in my mama's womb. I didn't have a choice in that, right? And, and I am better at basketball than most of you. Not necessarily because I worked so hard at it, although I did, but mostly just because I'm three foot closer to the rim than some of you. <laughs> I'm not saying that privilege is always providential. I think there's sometimes where it's taken, where it's robbed, where it's used unjustly. But I am saying that a lot, we're born in the situations we're born into. And so here's what I, like the conversation again is that I, I am white, I am male, I have no leg in this conversation. Um, but what I also am hearing on maybe the other side of the conversation is you can't tell me what kind of privilege I have. Because we kind of like, and this is maybe a little more of us in this room today, if we're just going to be honest, we kind of snap into this like, oh, like I, you don't know my story. I picked myself in my own bootstraps. Like I've worked hard. I've provided for my family. And here's what I just want to say. Maybe you have. Maybe you did. Maybe you weren't given anything in your life. It doesn't mean you weren't privileged. And so we get so triggered when we hear that word rather than asking ourselves the question, is it true? Man, I've been asking myself that question recently. Like I had, I had black friends in high school. D did I have a different road than they did, really? I'm, I may never really know this side of eternity. I can't point to anything specifically that I ever did against them or that, that anything anyone ever did against them. But like, maybe. And we get so triggered when we hear that word rather than ask ourselves the right question, which is, what do I have? You see, culture wants to say that you should feel bad and you should feel guilty about your privilege, especially if you aren't using it in a way that they determine is the outcome that is best. 
You following me there? So like I'm getting a lot of like white silence equals violence. If you don't post this kind of stuff on Instagram, then you're part of the problem. Um, like there's, there's white guilt that I'm seeing now where people are just like lamenting the fact that they're white and they're going, oh my gosh, I can't believe like I didn't see before. And there's this huge guilt that's put on people because of privilege because you're not using it in the way that I've already predetermined is the right outcome for the situation. But rather what the Bible wants to do is say, no, no, you're not accountable to any man for how you've used your privilege, but you are accountable to the Lord. And so here's where maybe the conversation starts to shift a little bit. Uh, the parable of the talents, I find it such a fascinating parable. We we're going to read through the whole thing, but we just don't quite have the time this morning. But you know the story, probably. A lot of you have been around church for a long time. Master is going away on a journey, so he gives one of his servants five talents. It's a monetary value. He gives him five units of dollars. He gives another one two. He gives another one one. Now, immediately in the story, there's no questioning of why he gave who what. There's no accusing. Well, you got five. I only got one. Like, what? What's, it's not happening. Master goes away. He comes back to find the, the one he gave five had used that five to earn five more. So he put his money to work. Doesn't say where, he doesn't say what, but all of a sudden he's got 10 now when the master comes back to see how he stewarded the resources that he gave him. The one that he gave two came back with two more. The one that he had given one buried that one because he was afraid of what the servant, what the master might do to him. He came back and he had one. And the master's answer to the one who buried the one said, you wicked servant, you could have at least put it in the bank so that it earned some interest, but you did nothing with what I gave you. That story is found in Matthew 25. And Matthew 25 actually goes through a few different stories. And all of them are about Jesus' second coming. And it's, it's beg, Jesus is begging you to consider, are you prepared for that day to happen? Have you been prudent with what he's given to you? And so I'm, I'm getting frustrated with the amount of people that I see that are trying to deflect the fact that they have privilege rather than taking a biblical approach and be like, maybe I was given five talents. Maybe I was given two. Maybe I was given one. I'm not going to complain about how many my master gave me though. And I'm going to put it to work for his glory. And so listen, the, like I, I love, Ken has said this for years. You're going to be asked two questions of you when you, when you go to heaven, when you meet Jesus for the first time, God's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? And it's this beautiful question that I think we should all consider. What have I done with the good news of Jesus? I am not perfect. I am sinful. I am selfish. I am greedy. I have fallen short in so many ways. But God, but Jesus, being rich in mercy, has poured out his love for you. He, he offered up everything so that he could have a relationship with you. What did you do with that good news? And hopefully you get to that point and you say, I just surrendered to him. It was so good. I just gave my life to him. And I was no longer a slave to sin, but now I was a slave to righteousness. But the second question is just as important. What did you do with the things I gave you? The first one gets you into heaven. That's going to be awesome. But the second one, like it just begs us to consider what did you do with the things that God's given to you? I am speaking to a very privileged group of people right now. How are you using the things that God has given to you? And before so many people, like I, I heard the protests, you know, when you're like, you know, the feeling when you're writing a sermon and you hear the voices of opposition, like, well, yeah, but Austin, yeah, but has that ever happened to you? Just me. Okay. It's a joke. Okay. Like I know I'm just, you guys are very quiet right now. 
But what about the people that, are, that don't make a lot of money? What about the people that don't, don't have an abundance? What about the people who don't have a 401k? They're not about to retire on time. They're going to have to work for forever. Like, what about the people who aren't married in a two-income household? What about the single moms, the single dads out there? What about these people? And I would just, I would just have you consider that you are born into maybe one of the most opportunistic and not perfect countries in the world, but gosh, you have a lot available to you right now. Uh, according to this Forbes article that I read this week, if you are a middle, an average middle-class person in America, you're among the top three to five income earners in the world, three to 5% of income earners in the world. So, so we love to, in church, go like, oh, you know, well, it's hard for the rich man to enter into heaven. It's as hard as for him to, as a camel to enter through the eye of a needle, right? We all love that verse. And what I don't know that you realize or not is that verse is talking about you. We're privileged. We have a lot of things at our disposal. We have so many opportunities. I think of how social media will be used against us in heaven to go, I gave you, I gave you all this access to the Bible. I gave you all these resources. I gave you all this technology to reach all these different people. And you wasted how, many, how much time looking at TikTok? You serious right now? I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but it's like, I just, we've been given so much. Living in this country is a privilege. You have, we have access to so many things that like I've been to a village that exists in the Guatemala, Guatemala city dump. And that's where the people live. That's where they built their life. I've been to Haiti where people live in, in things that you wouldn't even call houses here. We're privileged and it shouldn't trigger us. But the answer, the, the problem is not your privilege. The problem is the personal responsibility that we do with our privilege. How are you using it? That's the Bible's argument. Even in here in Ephesians chapter six, where Paul's saying, hey, you might be a master, you might be a bondservant, but what are you doing for the Lord right now? What are you doing for him? What do you have to offer him? I, I wanna read you just the last few verses out of Matthew uh, 25, because I think it really shows us, okay, what, what do we do? What does it look like when we actually are prudent? What does it look like when we prepare for Christ's coming? What does it look like when we take personal responsibility for the privileges that we've been given and we put them to work in the world? He says, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, not the goats, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And when did we feed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or when you were naked and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How are you using your privilege? It's interesting when you actually look at history, when you look at biblically what happens when people embrace the fact that they've been given much, 
when people recognize that and they're not feeling guilty or they're feeling ashamed about it, but they actually use it as a steward and long to see the glory of God come and be, and be uh, manifested in their life. What you see is in Acts 2. When, when the church is being birthed and all these crazy things are happening and all of a sudden they're, see, they're seeing people in the church in need and they're selling their stuff and they're, they're helping meet needs in the church. They're just finding needs and filling it. Now, it's never the church's job to just eradicate the social structures we live in, but as Christians, when we're transformed by the gospel, we see people and we need, we're in need, and we say, you know what? I don't need my Xbox anymore. I can get 100 bucks for that. You need 100 bucks for groceries this week. I can do that. I can help you. And we take personal responsibility. We step into those spaces and we help. As slavery drifted from ancient Near East customs and it moved into colonial slavery, what it looks like when we think of that word, when this started to happen in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s, it was Christians who became the first abolitionists. It was Christians who led the charge and said, no, this isn't okay. We can't let this happen anymore. This is not what it used to be. You have guys like William Wilberforce who led the charge, that, who was one of the primary abolitionists in Europe who fought against it. it, was a Christian man. It was people like John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon writing sermons over to the Americas saying you can't be doing this anymore. The, the Quaker church was what, like huge in leading the charge in abolishing slavery being legal in our country. It's Christians who stepped in. You ever wondered why there's so many hospitals with the word saint in front of them? It's because before there were for-profit medical centers, there were ministries that Christians who had been transformed by the gospel owned their personal responsibility and saw to it that they helped those who were broken and hurting and sick. It was Christians in the civil rights movement who said, no, look, not everybody's being treated the same way and it's not okay. And it was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who gathered pastors and had prayer meetings and grabbed other people and said, this is not okay. And they led peaceful protests through prayer and worship first. It's Christians now who take on the burden of the still uh, remaining legal slavery that exists in this world, child sex trafficking. And it's organizations like Life of the Innocent that you and I partner with through our giving here at Good Shepherd Church that we say, no, we're not going to tolerate this. This has to change. It's Christians who embrace and receive the ministry of reconciliation that they've been given, who take personal responsibility with whatever's in my hand. It doesn't matter if I have five talents, three talents, one talents, whatever's in my hand, I'm going to put it to work for God's kingdom. Amen? Gary, are we Okay. Okay, I have five minutes left. I want to tell you about Serve Week this week. Again, we didn't shut the church down this morning. We didn't go out and serve. I think God's going to use it to reach more people than we ever thought we ever could before. And so what I want you to do as we close, as we go forward from here, as you go home today, I want you to talk with the people that are in your household, and I want you to say, what do we have that we can use to give God glory this week? And I want you to ask five questions where can I use my voice? You have, everyone has a voice. You have a voice, you have influence with somebody. Maybe it's on social media, maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's with a coworker, you have a voice. Where can you use your voice to serve somebody this week? Where can you use your voice to build somebody up rather than tear them down? Where can you use your hands? We're the hands and feet of Jesus, baby. That's the church, that's who we are. Where can you go use your hands this week as you go out and serve? Can you just go pull weeds for your neighbor? I hate pulling weeds. But God might say, hey, go pull their weeds. I'll be like, all right, Lord, it's what you put in my hand for today. I'm gonna go take it. I'm gonna go serve somebody. 
where can you use your money? You know, like I think of what happened in Beirut this week. There's like hundreds of thousands of people displaced from their home. Their church is on the ground getting to work over there right now. You can find them with a quick Google search on the internet. You could support them. You could see how you can help. You can see how you can get involved. Where can you use your money somewhere? Is there a kid who needs it? Is there a single mom who needs it? Where can you, where can you make a difference with your money? God has given you some. And don't think that you have none. I think of the widow who put two mites in the offering at the temple, right? She put in virtually, it was worthless. It was worth nothing. There were people throwing in buckets of money in that offering plate that day. And Jesus stops and he says, no, no, no. She's given more because she gave up everything. Don't think that giving little is insignificant. Where can you give your time? Time is maybe for some of you the most precious commodity that you have. Where can you just take an hour out of your day and be interruptible? Can the Holy Spirit use you in a moment to derail your schedule? You might miss a bunch of appointments, but can he use you in a moment? Where could you use your community? God, I have a whole bunch of people that could help me. I got a small group maybe. I got friends from church. I got a neighborhood here. How, could I rally? Could I, could I go out and rally some people around this project that could happen? Where could I use my voice? Where could I use my hands? Where could I use my money? Where could I use my time? Where could I use my community this week? I think far too often I hear Christians praying Come, Lord Jesus. And you know, a lot of times I'm like, amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Like, let's, let's just get on going to heaven. Amen, somebody? Come, Lord Jesus. But all too often that prayer is used for an escapist mentality. This world's broken and I want to get the heck out of here. Jesus, come on back, fix this thing. What if you just prayed, come, Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, come into me. Show me what you've given me. Show me what you put in my hand. Show me how I can use it in my world this week. You're around somebody who needs to know the love of Jesus. If our church closed, this is the hallmark of faith in action. If our church closed, would anybody know that we were gone? I pray that this week as you go out and you serve, you do something that would be a resounding no. There would be people who would miss us dearly. Maybe people who used to show up at my house, people who used to show up in my inbox, people who showed up in my bank account to help me out this week. So again, our hashtag, you can write this down, is Serve Loveland 2020. And I would just encourage you, whatever you do, you could slap the t-shirt on, you could tie-dye it, you could just go in whatever clothes you want to. Go serve somebody this week. Use one of those five areas. Maybe use all those areas. Come Holy Spirit, how would you use me this week? And then please, like we would love to see the story Again, you got, you got to recognize some of the frustration that's on the staff right now that we were putting so much effort and excitement into faith in action. Like we love faith in action. We love going into those schools and making a difference, which by the way, we just dropped off like a hundred teacher bags. Like every single teacher at Conrad Ball and uh, Mary Blair got a welcome bag back to school this year. So thank you guys for that. You sent those over this week, but it's frustrating. And so I just, I need your help that you would show us the stories that God is doing out in our community this week. So it doesn't have to be the hashtag. You can send it into Deanna if you want to. You can just type it in and email one of us. It doesn't matter. We just want to know where God's making an impact in our community. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. Well, Jesus, here we are, offering up whatever it is that you've put in our hands to you, Lord. God, I pray that we would not be so triggered and offended by the thought of us having privilege, but I pray that it would drive us into more responsibility, that we would see ourselves as 
uh, committed to and obligated to be good stewards of the resources, of the influence, of the skin color that you've put on us. Jesus, would we use the things that you've put in our hands for the furthering and the advancing of your kingdom, of your love, of your redemptive touch, your grace, your mercy. Jesus, let us be extensions of you into this world this week. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, we love you guys. We'll see you next week.